If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. The Speech Uncensored podcast is welcoming Kelsey Day back to the show for part two of her guide to improving our dysphagia documentation. This episode is dedicated to documentation of fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, otherwise known as fees, video fluoroscopic swallow studies, and treatment notes. We've got a lot of ground to cover and thankfully Kelsey did an excellent job laying the foundation in part one of this two-part series, uh, which can be found in episode 18 of season three. So we're just gonna jump right back in and get this show on the road. My name is Leanne Porter and I'm your host. All right, welcome to part two of our amazing, in-depth, like delightful, delicious discussion about dysphagia documentation with Kelsey Day. (laughs) Do you like my Oprah voice? I'm very proud of that. I've never gotten an introduction like that. Thank you. (laughs) Yay, I aim to please. (laughs) All right, Kelsey. Well, just in case this is someone picking up in the middle and they didn't listen to part one, I want you to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about you and what you do. So my name is Kelsey Day. I'm an acute care speech pathologist. I work in the intensive care unit primarily with critically ill, multi-trauma and tracheostomy and ventilator dependent patients. Um, I'm the lead speech pathologist at California Hospital Medical Center, which is a level two trauma center and stroke center in downtown LA. Um, I supervise a team of nine SLPs there, which I really enjoy. I mentor for the Medical SLP Collective. I guest lecture at Cal State University Fullerton. Um, I just love teaching new SLPs, medical speech pathology and dysphagia management. Awesome. Yeah. It's very clear, like how comfortable you are in like sharing information and education and making it accessible. And I don't know, maybe it's just me and like, I'm such a nerd, but like, like even your documentation, like clearly, like I love seeing the examples on Instagram and learning from them. Like they're so organized. I love it. Okay. Awesome. That's the goal. Yeah. I said that like a hundred times in part one. Okay. (laughs) We covered the um, clinical swallow evaluation, the items that should be in your clinical swallow um, report writing, and also like what to do in that, Mm -hmm. which was awesome. Major bonus. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And so now we're moving on to the imaging side of things. So we're just going to pick right back up and let you go to town. Sure. So let's go into the elements of a fees, so flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing. Um, So I'm just going to jump right into the report because obviously you either perform fees or you don't perform fees. Um, But so when you're writing a report for fees, you're going to include a subjective statement. So 
I don't think people should underestimate the value of the subjective statement here. So when people don't put much thought or effort into the, the S portion of the report, that can have some serious implications down the road. So when I write an S, a subjective, I'm commenting on my patient's level of alertness, their cognitive communication skills to be able to participate in the exam, their pain and their work of breathing. And why is that important? Well, this is a comment on the, my fees report that I'm writing is a comment on the patient's swallow physiology at this moment in time. Now, if the next SLP receives this patient in this report, the S does not match what they're seeing. If I'm saying that my patient is fully alert, they're following all the commands, they're breathing comfortably on room air, and they receive a patient who's obtunded, who's oriented times one, who can hardly rouse, who's working hard to breathe, then they know that these report findings are no longer valid, right? So I think it's really important that we don't just like write like patient here, like we really actually put some thought into it because it can help our next clinicians know when it's time to repeat an exam and when these results are valid or not valid. So that's excellent. That's yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Like I always like to know like how they were for the evaluation, but honestly, I feel like sometimes what I write or what I see is just kind of how they participated or if they didn't participate like very well, like basically what their behavior was. And so that gives me an idea of like what I'm walking into. Um, so I like how you're phrasing things or, and also like what you're looking for and reporting on more of just their overall condition. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, it's subjective information still. It's what I perceive my patient's condition to be also. Um, but I think it's important for the next clinician. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then we're going to move into, when you're writing a fees report, the objective information. So here you're going to start first with the trials that you administered. What textures did you provide? Um, you're going to include information on the type of respiratory support that your patient's receiving at the time of the, the exam. There is a huge difference between a patient breathing on room air versus on high flow nasal cannula. And if so, we should be including the flow rate that's being provided during the exam. Or if your patient's tracheostomy or ventilator dependent, you should be including the ventilator settings and the cuff status and the speaking valve status um, during the exam or, you know, if you're trialing multiple conditions because it impacts the validity of the results. Um, I have a quick question to interrupt you with. Um, a lot of us are using um, electronic medical records in our mm -hmm. hospitals these days. I feel like the way mine is currently set up is basically check boxes, like things we tick off or there's like a column and we click what's the most appropriate answer. And I feel like a lot of the descriptions that you're giving for this are very narrative. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do? Do you just type everything out? Like what, wh how are you integrating this with your electronical medical record? So I have used both Cerner and Epic and in Cerner, where I work, the format is designed to be very much like what you said. All of these pages of check boxes and click, click, clicks that I think are useless. <laughs> I, I, I think agree. they're garbage. I um, they're, yeah, they're like ancient and they're not developed by SLPs clearly or like they're not relevant to what I'm doing with my patient. So I entirely bypass all of that and I go straight to any section where it lets me free text. 
I don't fill out any of the ClickBox information. I go straight into the free text section and I've created like templates via smart phrases that you can do both in Epic and in Cerner. Um, so it's like an auto text function with my template for each eval um, that I'm doing. So clinical, swallow, fees, video. And I just like type in the shortcut, my template pops up and then I go from there. So I just disregard all boxes in EMRs, personal opinion. <laughs> I uh, I do I do portions of that too. I'm still a bit of a slave to the click boxes, but I feel like that's me trying to be in line and be um, coherent with what my colleagues are doing too. Like I don't want right. to be so off the track that my documentation is like vastly different. Like I I try to make meet in the middle where I still find all the free type boxes mm-hmm. <laughs> and I use smart phrases and I use them but I'm still trying to keep the format the same. So, right. Yeah. I mean, as the lead at my hospital, I took the liberty of putting these templates into all of my colleagues. Um, EMRs also. So we all do the same thing. Um, and you know, they are still free to write what they please, but we're just all kind of following the same format. Cause I agree that consistency, like we talked about in part one is important. So people know where to find information you need. Um, but I think as a team, maybe come up with, does this EMR suit our needs or not? Maybe you have the most wonderful like check boxes ever and you can use them, but maybe not. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Thanks for humoring me on that random flight of fancy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, what were we saying? So I was just going through, yeah, report writing for fees. So we talked about subjective and then we were getting into the objective information that we're including. So we're writing down the trials that we administered, the type of respiratory support our patients are on. And then we're going straight into the nasopharyngoscopic findings. So here we're commenting mostly on velopharyngeal function and then any anatomic variants that we might see. And then from there, we're going to comment on pharyngoscopic and laryngoscopic findings. Um, So here we might comment on the secretions, on the pharyngeal wall contraction and non-swallow tasks, like in an effortful pitch glide, um, vocal fold motion, and any anatomic findings here. These are the anatomic findings of the pharynx and the larynx. And then from there, once we've commented on the patient's nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal, hypopharyngeal, laryngeal anatomy, then we're moving into the physiology. So we're commenting on the oral phase findings. So of course, with these, the information we can gather about the oral phase is limited, but there are some things we can comment on. We can comment on anterior oral containment. We can look at our patient and see if it's spilling from their lips. Um, We can comment on posterior oral containment as we see the bolus fall into the pharynx. Um, We can comment on the patient's mastication if we see unmasticated large pieces of solids entering the pharynx. And then we can comment on the clearance of the oral cavity just by simply checking their mouth after a bolus. Um, And that's kind of it for the oral phase, in my opinion. And then the pharyngeal phase endoscopic swallow findings, we're commenting on the swallow trigger, on the pharyngeal wall contraction, base of tongue retraction, laryngeal vestibule closure, UES relaxation, pharyngeal residue, the patient's response to that residue, airway invasion, and that patient's response to airway invasion. So these are most of the components of MBSIMP. I mean, we should always be commenting on physiology during an evaluation of swallow physiology, obviously. Um, So we're commenting on all of those things. Under fees, some of these need to be inferred. So for example, I might not be able to directly see the base of tongue retraction or the UES relaxation on fees, but I can make some inferences about those. 
Um, so, you know, we all know the, the benefits and limitations of different instrumental exams. Um, so I'm commenting on all of those things. I'm also commenting on any compensatory strategies trialed. So I want to list all compensatory strategies that I trialed, and you should be trialing compensatory strategies. That's a whole separate talk if you're not doing that. Um, and then on the efficacy of those strategies. So it doesn't help me if you just wrote chin tuck and then you don't say, well, did that help? What, what happened? Right. So please comment also on the efficacy of this compensatory strategies. Um, and then I include the eight point penetration aspiration scale or PAS. Um, so I include the PA scale for each consistency that was trialed. And I think there are different ways to do it out there. Um, but my preference is the PA scale for each consistency that I trial and I report on the one worst PA scale. Um, and then I include the DOS or the dysphagia outcome and severity scale, which, you know, was produced, I think, in like 1999, but I still think is very, very valid. And that's my favorite of all of the dysphagia outcome or severity scales that are available. Um, but, you know, I think you can use whichever scale you think suits your needs best, but it is nice to have some consistency between therapists um, in giving dysphagia severity ratings. Um, and then you're writing your assessment of the fees. So what is your impression? What's the overall diagnosis and your interpretation from the fees? So for here, you're going to say the dysphagia diagnosis um, in terms of both the severity, like is it mild, moderate, severe, according to the DOS or whatever scale you're using. And then also the classification. Is it just oral phase? Is it pharyngeal phase? Is it oropharyngeal? Or is it maybe pharyngoesophageal? So you, you want to say, you know, my patient presents with moderate oropharyngeal dysphagia, for example. Um, and then I also like to comment on the etiology if it's known. So for many patients, it could be multifactorial related to both acute and chronic dysphagia risk factors. But if you know what's causing your patient's dysphagia, it's probably nice to say that in your assessment. Um, and then a prognostic statement, if that's known, which probably can't be known unless you know the etiology. Um, and then I include a statement of both the swallow safety and the efficiency. So we know that, you know, dysphagia diagnostics aren't only about, is my patient aspirating? It's also about how efficient is my patient's swallow? And are they also at risk for malnutrition or dehydration? Those things. Um, and then we want to include a statement of the patient's personal risk factors for developing a dysphagia-related pulmonary or nutrition and hydration complication. So then the safety, in quotes, right, for an oral diet um, and the necessity of possible supplementation for oral feeding. Um, and then we're going to move into the recommendations from our fees exam. So we're, again, going to number them like I always do. So your diet recommendation. Um, strategies to reduce the risk for dysphagia-related pulmonary complication like oral hygiene and increasing physical mobility, those things that are within our patient's control. Um, and then we want to include specialist referrals. So at this point, if you've done a fees, you probably have a pretty good idea if your patient needs a referral to ENT or GI or neurology or a dietitian. So you'll include those things. Um, maybe recommendations for ancillary medical procedures. So you might not know this right at bedside, but by fees, you probably know my patient needs a laryngoscopy or more specifically, they might need like a CT soft tissue neck or an esophagram. So we don't order these things, but we can certainly say, you know, guide 
our physician colleagues in the direction that we're thinking, we can say, instead of just GI consult, like for what? Do you think that there's a structural abnormality? Is there a motility issue? Because then the GI has to determine what test to do from there. Well, if you can say, you know, and this is more relevant maybe for a video swallow with an esophageal screen, but like the, the presentation is consistent with the motility issue. So GI consult for possible high resolution esophageal manometry. So you're, the consultants will make their own decisions, but I think that there's certainly a role for us to kind of give our opinion and guidance on what exams might be really useful. Yeah, I, I like that statement because I find if I just am like, ooh, you know, this person needs to see an ENT. Okay, they might get that referral and they'll go see an ENT and the ENT doesn't know what they're supposed to be looking for or assessing. So they'll just do a general exam, not something more specific or targeted to what I needed them to do if they don't have that information. So if you can give them some of that by guiding them like, oh, they might need this. Because I mean, just off the top of your head, what are like the top three or four studies somebody in GI would do? Right. You, you talked about the manometry. Yeah. The, they might do a high resolution esophageal manometry. They might do an EGD um, and they might also like make a referral for an esophagram. Yeah. Those are three very different tests that use very different tools that have very different results and they're looking for different things. So like if you can provide some of that guidance on like what they what you think they might want to do that to me, that would just help that doctor know. Right. And then they can make their own decisions based on everything else in your notes. But if you just give them like a, hey, what's up? Like, because I appreciate that when I get referrals from doctors, if I get a referral and it just says CVA, I'm like, thanks for nothing. (laughs) Yeah, we all want, you know, no one's ever going to be. I've never had a physician offended. Like, why would you tell me to do a laryngoscopy? I decide if I do the laryngoscopy. No, like we're all in it for the patient. We're all trying to help the patient. I'm telling you, I saw a vocal fold mobility issue that I think warrants an ENT laryngoscopy. I think the ENT is going to read that and say, absolutely. Right. Um, And, you know, I think it's so frustrating. Like years ago when I would just, I didn't want to overstep any boundaries. You know, I'm just being a a really careful CF and I'm like, okay, I did my video swallow and esophageal screening. There are strange movements happening everywhere. The bolus is going up and down and up and down. I go, wow, this patient must have an esophageal motility disorder. They need a GI. Then I write in my note, gastroenterology consult. And then the GI does an EGD and then they go, oh, looks good. Then I'm like, why am I so frustrated right now? Well, I didn't give them the information that they needed. I didn't say GI consult for suspected esophageal dysmotility, right? So um, I think we, since we're doing these diagnostics, we need to be clear with the information we're receiving from them and with the implications on, on how this might affect our colleagues. Yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, so I'm just listing all the things that I put in my recommendations for fees. So diet recs, strategies for reducing pulmonary complications, and then specialist referrals and ancillary medical procedures. And then also treatment recommendations um, in terms of swallowing therapy, if it's indicated, and continuing care recommendations. So if possible, I like to say when if follow-up fees or video swallow might be indicated, like a general time frame. Um, to, so my patients know what to expect. So the physicians know what to expect. I like to be really clear with timeframes, as much detail as we can provide so that everyone's on the same page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So that is everything that goes into a general fees report, I think. Excellent. And then, um, so I think from here, I can give you guys a case study of the fees I did. Yes. And this is the same patient that you talked about in part one during the clinical swallow evaluation. So you're taking that patient's information and that clinical swallow study or eval that you did with them. And now we're looking at the fees part. Right. And then just a quick review. Um, So that patient was an 80 something year old male who came with dyspnea and chest pain and dysphagia. He has a history of a right-sided thyroid and mediastinal mass and tumor um, that causes him some chronic dysphagia symptoms, but they're being managed. He says that his symptoms progressed over the last few weeks and he's having much more difficulty swallowing. So that is why he came to the hospital. Um, So I did my clinical swallow evaluation, said this patient was really dysphonic also, and said, obviously this patient needs a fees. So I... um, did my fees on him. When I wrote my report, I wrote it like this. So my subjective statement, I said my patient was alert. He was following commands. His respiratory rate and effort were within normal limits. Um, My objective data, I listed the trials that I administered. So I gave him ice chips, thin liquid via teaspoon, cup and straw, puree and solid. Um, He was on no respiratory support. He was just on room air. My nasopharyngitis, my nasopharyngoscopic findings were that the velopharyngeal function was normal, the anatomy was normal. My pharyngoscopic and laryngoscopic findings were that there were, in terms of secretions, there were mild secretions throughout the pharynx and the larynx, um, that there was normal pharyngeal wall contraction bilaterally, that in terms of vocal fold motion, this is where there was very significant dysfunction that I went into a lot of detail about because in part one, I talked about this patient's clinical swallow, clinical swallow findings and that his S to Z ratio was, I forget if it was 1.8 or 1.9, um, but it was very high. Um, his voice was severely hoarse and harsh and um, strained even. Um, and so when I looked on fees, his vocal fold motion, I wrote this significant dysfunction of the bilateral larynx and vocal folds. The right true vocal fold was in the median position at rest and there was very subtle, inconsistent right arytenoid and vocal fold abduction only with cues for deep inspiration. So the right was completely medial. And then the left vocal fold was in a paramedian position at rest with some left arytenoid and left vocal fold abduction, but complete adduction. The patient was observed to breathe through a very small posterior glottic gap for the majority of the exam. And the anterior two thirds of the vocal folds were in an adducted position. Um, there was significant hyperfunction of the bilateral ventricular fold. So this patient's airway was significantly compromised by this vocal fold dysfunction bilaterally. Um, And then the anatomic findings, I wrote laryngeal asymmetry as described above. Um, And then in my oral phase findings, I said his anterior and posterior oral containment were normal. His mastication was normal. His oral clearance was normal. In the pharyngeal phase endoscopic swallow findings, I said that the swallow trigger was timely. Pharyngeal wall contraction was normal bilaterally. Base of tongue retraction was normal. Laryngeal vestibule closure was actually normal, if not like hyperfunctional. Um, the UES relaxation, I said that I inferred there was some impairment due to inconsistent retrograde bolus flow from the UBS and upper esophageal sphincter into the postcricoid space. And I even wrote that I query possible extrinsic compression by the known mediastinal mass. Um, 
And then for pharyngeal residue, I said there's mild postcricoid residue, which regressed from the UES in cervical esophagus. I said that the patient's response to residue was just spontaneous dry swallows, um, that there was no airway invasion. Um, and so I didn't need to comment on the sensation to airway invasion. For compensatory strategies, I said none required. The patient spontaneously utilized um, swallows to clear residue. And then for the eight-point PA scale, thin liquids were a one, puree was a one, and solids were a one, no airway invasion. For my DOS, the dysphagia outcome and severity scale, I said level five, so full PO, modified diet and or independence, mild dysphagia, distant supervision may need one diet consistency restriction. So if you look at DOS there, that's like the text that's already written out for you. So I said that this is a, you know, mild dysphagia level five. So my assessment, um, as I wrote out, so my assessment was mild pharyngoesophageal dysphagia, likely related to UES in cervical esophageal dysfunction and or compression, swallow safety is preserved, and patient is at low risk for dysphagia-related pulmonary complication. However, swallow efficiency is mildly impaired, and patient is at increased risk for possible malnutrition. Laryngoscopic exam revealed significant bilateral vocal fold dysfunction, resulting in reduced bilateral vocal fold abduction and significant upper airway obstruction, which is concerning for possible bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve involvement, possibly related to the neck and mediastinal mass. I also, you know, and this isn't common in most reports, but if I have a concern for airway patency on fees, I'm definitely going to include that in my assessment. So I write here that there is concern regarding this patient's airway patency warranting immediate ENT evaluation. And there's also concern for possible partial obstruction of the UES or cervical esophagus warranting further evaluation. Swallow prognosis is good, pending potential medical and surgical intervention. Whew. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> I like that. And it just, it paints such a clear picture. Like I can, I can see these things in my head without seeing your exam. Mm -hmm. Like your descriptions are so clear. Like if, if you're familiar with anatomy, which, you know, most doctors are right. Like they're going, they're going to be able to visualize that and see what's actually happening and where those risk factors are and make those judgments as well. Like we don't have to say, uh, that, we don't, I don't know. Like, I don't think we have to like put a label on it that much when it's like, it's, it's pretty clear too. Yeah. So, and then, I mean, from there I go into recommendations and I think that with all of the statements above, like the need for these recommendations are pretty clear. So the physicians were very much on board with my recommendations. So first I said um, to continue the puree and thin liquid diet, um, I, we also need a follow-up video swallow study to evaluate possible extrinsic compression of the pharynx or cervical esophagus. These wasn't enough. I couldn't see um, if the UES or cervical esophagus was being compressed. Um, that, view, that view is just not obtained on these. Um, I said that the patient needs to use aspiration and reflux precautions, including small bites of solid because he reports more difficulty with solids. And of course, that makes sense with the underlying patho pathology that we, that he has, um, and that he should stay upright for his meals, given that regurgitation. Um, I recommended oral hygiene every four hours, um, his head of bed upright as tolerated and close airway monitoring. Um, I recommended an immediate ENT consult for laryngos laryngoscopy, given the concern for poor upper airway patency. And then I said further treatment 
recommendations pending those video swallow results. Excellent. Very good. I'm so glad you also kind of talked a little bit about like why you know you're going to follow up with the video because like what you were able to see on fees, but also like what you weren't able to, but what you did see on fees that indicated you needed to see something that you could see better with the video. For example, like that regurgitation that was happening. You were curious suspicious that there was some compression because also, you know, there's a mass in that area too that might be affecting that. And when you see that reflux, like one plus one equals two. So that's, yeah, I feel like that's what your documentation is. You are taking so many factors and you're not simplifying it. You're just making it so clear where it feels like one plus one equals two, but there's so much critical thinking and detective work going on that it's almost deceptive. Like how easy it looks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like such a departure from what I used to do, like what I was told to do in grad school and what I did for the first few years of my practice. Like my notes, my assessment used to be like my patient coughs with thin liquids and sometimes throat clears with nectar. That seems better. Like, I mean, (laughs) like It's not useful. And, you know, we've come a long way and it's really hard to admit, you know, when we didn't practice well, but, you know, you've got to got to grow. You've got to learn. Our field has come a long way and let's just keep moving forward and doing better. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And it's really helpful when folks like yourself who have done the hard work, who have done the self-study are like, here, let's learn together. Like, here's, here's the work that I did. And and then you want to share it. That's hugely helpful. So kudos to you for putting it out there. All right. So are we going to learn about how he did on fees? Or I'm sorry, on video. Like, I just want to like skip like the rundown of the video. I just want to know how he did. How he did. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to make you guys listen first to like what needs to go into a video follow study. And, you know, it's, also not all that different from fees. They're both instrumental. They both comment on on the swallow physiology. So a lot of things are similar. Um, There are a few differences and then we'll get into his case. Okay. Um, So in terms of elements for a video swallow study, again, we have the S statement. So we've already beaten beaten that to death. So we know what goes into the S. Um, We have our objective information. So we include the child's administered. So on video fluoroscopy, you're going to say the the type of product that you used because it gives the next clinician information on exactly what texture was trialed. Um, So we all know with like IDSI coming out, how you can more easily standardize liquid textures. Um, So I always use Veribar products. So I use Veribar Thin, Veribar Nectar, Veribar Thin Honey, Veribar Pudding, and then a solid coated in Veribar Pudding. Um, And I don't use all of those for every patient, but... So you'll list the trials administered and um, which of those it was. Um, And then you're going to want to include the projections um, that you conducted your study in. Okay. So quick question about the type of product used. So basically you're saying when you basically say like I'm using Veribar Thin, Veribar XYZ, that's going to be a slightly different... um, I don't know, like texture than a different product, barium product? Well, there are variations in the in consistency between products. 
So I've gone through and I've flow rate tested as many other clinicians have like the Verabar products. And we know that Verabar thin when mixed according to the instructions is actually a thin liquid on ITSY. And Verabar nectar is actually a mildly thick liquid on ITSY. And that Verabar thin honey, not the honey, the thin honey is actually the moderately thick liquid on ITSY. So if that's important, because if you're using like barium products intended for other GI studies, they might not be what the thin liquid for another barium for like a an esophagram might not actually be thin liquid on ITSY. So you want to just make note at the very least of what product you are using and its texture or consistency according to ITSY would be preferable. And then my other question is, um, there is the ITSY level that is the slightly thick, right? It's between the thin and the mildly thick. But does Verabar have that level? Are we testing that level yet? Or are we just kind of pretending it doesn't exist yet? I, I think that's mostly in, mostly used for pediatrics. Oh, okay. Like Thank neonates, you. maybe like a half nectar. Like in, in like, if you do like NICU care, like you might be doing a half nectar. So that might be the, the slightly thick, but we're not really using that for adults. All right. Cause I was wondering, I'm like, is this going to be a thing? Am I going to have to have like four consistencies for adults? Okay. <laughs> that makes so much more sense. All right. Okay. All right. Then, so you, when you were talking about the first part of the objective for your videos, you talk about the trials administered and the products that you used. And then what was that second part that you were just oh, getting to? And then I was saying, you also want to comment on the projections that you complete your video swallow study in. So is it in the lateral projection? Is it in the AP projection? I mean, hopefully you're doing both. Um, and then the respiratory support, like always that your patients on because that impacts their swallowing. And then you're going to comment on the anatomic view under fluoroscopy. So you'll note any variance in their anatomy. And here we are not diagnosing. We're just commenting on what we see and saying to refer to the radiologist report for details. Um, and then you're going to comment on oral phase findings. So here, oral and pharyngeal phase findings, I like to use the MBSIMP. So all of those components. So we just run through them again really briefly, like labial seal, bolus formation, um, posterior oral containment, mastication, oral residue, swallow trigger, real pharyngeal closure, basal tongue retraction, basal um, pharyngeal wall contraction, laryngeal vestibule closure, UES relaxation. Oh, I'm out of breath. Um, pharyngeal residue, response to residue, and then airway invasion and response to airway invasion. So I just listed all of them. You know, hopefully if you're doing video fluoroscopy, you know the components of swallow physiology and you've taken MBS IMP. Um, and then we are commenting on compensatory strategies. Um, so which strategies were trialed and what the efficacy of those strategies was. Um, again, if you're not completing compensatory strategies for patients who can follow commands and there's a problem, we need to go back and you know review our video fluoroscopic skills. Um, we're gonna do an esophageal screening um, we are going to comment on the eight-point PA scale again for each texture, the DOS um, or whatever instrument you like to use to rate dysphagia severity, um, and then your assessment. So much like a fees, your assessment section should include the dysphagia diagnosis. So the severity, the classification, is it oral, pharyngeal, or pharyngeal, pharyngoesophageal? It's not changing between fees and video swallow. Um, the etiology, again, if it's known, the prognostic statement, again, if it's known, 
um, a comment on swallow safety and efficiency. So you can see a pattern here. These are things that we're always commenting on on instrumental swallow studies. And then uh, again, that statement of the patient's personal risk factors for developing a dysphagia-related pulmonary complication or nutrition and hydration complication um, in the safety for oral diet and necessity for maybe supplementation. And then um, we're talking about our recommendations. We're going to document these. So again, just like these, diet recommendations, strategies to reduce complications, specialist referrals, ancillary medical procedures, treatment recommendations, and continuing care recommendations like follow-up video swallows. Okay. Yeah. So much, much like fees. Yes. <laughs> How did our guy do? <laughs> How did he do? He did really well. <laughs> um, okay. So in my subjective statement, when I wrote his report for video swallow, so I said he was alert, he was following commands, his respiratory rate and effort were within normal limits. For objective, I said that I administered Varibar Thin, Varibar Pudding, and solid coated in Varibar Pudding. I conducted my study in the lateral and AP projections. Um, he had no respiratory support. He was on room air for the exam. The anatomic view under fluoroscopy was normal in the lateral projection, but in the AP projection, there was a right to left esophageal deviation. Um, so we'll kind of get into that a little bit later in the esophageal screen. Um, and then the oral phase findings, um, labial seal, bolus formation, posterior oral containment, mastication, and oral residue were all normal or none. Um, the pharyngeal phase findings, the swallow trigger, again, just like his face, was timely. BP closure was normal. Pharyngeal wall contraction was normal. Base of tongue retraction was normal. Pharyngeal vestibule closure was normal. And remember, on that phase, it was even hyperfunctional. Um, the UES relaxation. Now here I could see the UES function much more clearly on video swallow than I could on fees, which is why I wanted this exam. And so UES relaxation was mildly impaired. Um, there was pharyngeal residue, so there was some inconsistent mild UES residue. Um, and then his response to residue, just like it was on fees, he was spontaneously swallowing that residue. Again, like he performed on fees, there was no penetration or aspiration. Um, and then here's the juicy bit. I did the esophageal screen. Um, so in the AP view, the cervical esophagus deviated significantly to the left, which was presumably, presumably related to the known right-sided thyroid neck and mediastinal mass. Um, however, there was no overt mechanical obstruction of the lumen of the esophagus. And there was some retained contrast in the cervical and thoracic esophagus. I said, please see the radiologist report for details. So there was some abnormality. The cervical esophagus and UBS were deviated from right towards left, but it wasn't really compressing the lumen of the esophagus enough. It wasn't causing like a big obstruction, but it was definitely at least mildly impacting the function there. Um, and then for compensatory strategies, none. The patient was spontaneously swallowing his residue. Um, for the eight-point PA scale, again, thin liquids one, puree one, solid one. So no airway invasion. The DOS was still a five. Um, so mild dysphagia. So my assessment was a mild pharyngoesophageal dysphagia due to mechanical deviation of the upper esophageal sphincter and cervical esophagus, presumably by known neck and mediastinal mass. No significant obstruction to the upper esophageal lumen. Swallow safety is preserved, while swallow efficiency is mildly impaired. 
follow prognosis is good pending potential medical or surgical intervention. Um, okay. So basically you're saying like, he's essentially not a candidate for our intervention, like for behavioral strategies or anything like that. Like he would need medical, potentially surgical intervention to address that deviation in his anatomy. Right. I mean, this is why instrumentation is so important. Like what if I just did my clinical and I was like, you know what? How about a hundred Mendelssohn's for you? Like who knows what kind of efficacy there is when there can be these like anatomic abnormalities that aren't going to respond to therapy. Um, So it's not to say that this patient might not also benefit from some interventions and behavioral interventions with us, but in my opinion, potentially post-operatively. I mean, if there's a large mass compressing the UES that's continuing to grow, I don't know any number of like chin tuck against resistance exercises that's going to change that. Um, Maybe if the patient has... Um, surgical resection of that mass, postoperatively, we could work on that and then see if we can, you know, return to a functional swallow or functional UES relaxation. But I do think that the underlying anatomic variant needs to be addressed first. Um, Yeah. So that kind of goes into like, what were my recommendations on this patient? So um, number one, after I did the fees, I still, I still had him on puree because I really wanted to see like is his esophagus at any point being mechanically obstructed, right? And he was telling me he had a lot of difficulty to solids. Now on this video swallow, I saw that, you know, the solids were not being completely obstructed from passing. There was some residue, um, but he was able to swallow it down again. So um, my recommendations here were, I just said no diet restrictions from the SLP standpoint, solid diet modification per the patient's preference. So whatever he feels best swallowing. I did say that I recommend thin liquids and medications crushed if feasible. Um, and then I recommended aspiration and reflux precautions, including small bites of solids, like he says helps, um, and an upright position given the pathology. Um, I recommended oral hygiene, um, close airway monitoring. Again, he still, this was all done same day, so he still needed that ENT evaluation of the airway. I also recommended here a cardiothoracic surgery evaluation for the neck and mediastinal mass that's causing his pharyngoesophageal dysphagia. Um, and then I recommended SLP will, I will follow up for patient counseling and then potential, if he's a surgical candidate, postoperative dysphagia reevaluation and treatment. And then in addition, postoperative video stroboscopy and voice therapy. Yeah, that's so comprehensive, Kelsey. I think that's why I'm like so in awe of your documentation. (laughs) You're not just seeing like the whole picture of the patient. You're looking ahead at, you're so well-versed in what all the other disciplines are and what they would offer and who, who and how to refer to and what they may need to do that you're like looking into the future and seeing potentials and options and seeing where we would be helpful in potential outcomes in the future too. And I think that's what's so incredible. And that's kind of like where I'm a little limited. Like I'm still trying to just <laughs> like figure out the here and now, and you're like looking into the future, like get it, girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's where like our patients get lost to follow up sometimes is when in acute care, like if I'm not looking ahead for this patient, this patient might not be a good candidate for therapy with me now. But if I just say, you know, sign off, SLP will sign off because they're not a, they're not a candidate for therapy. 
And I don't say how that patient might benefit from our service in the future if XYZ changes, then that's when the physician never reconsults speech pathology because they say, oh, I already did that. And they said they weren't a therapy candidate. Well, we need to start being really clear with they're not a candidate because of this. And when these barriers are addressed, they will be a candidate. Um, so yeah, we need to like think about the now, but also definitely about the future for the next level of care. Um, I don't know if I go to, if I receive medical care for anything, I want my physician to tell me what's being done now. And I want to know the plan. I want to know when am I following up? Who are you referring to me, me to? How often do I need to be going to them? How often do I need to come back for reassessment? What's the prognosis for change? I have all of these questions. So if I ask that of a physician who I visit, then I expect that our patients want to know that information from us too. And we have the skills to do it. We're just not using them all the time. That's very true. Yeah. It's not in my forefront that I need that in there. And I think that's another thing that I love about your style of documentation is it's so educational without being like preachy to like anyone who's reading it. Right. It's like, (laughs) You just demonstrated why our intervention isn't needed for treatment right now, but it might be in the future. And like you said, that lets that doctor know how to reconsult us when those barriers are changed or altered, that there is still a role for us to play in this patient's care, but not at this moment. And this is why. That's educational. That's enlightening. And then they they see that, they get it, and they know for the future as well. And that's when like I'll use me when I don't put that in my documentation, like you just mentioned, then that doctor thinks, okay, well, I don't need to refer to speech anymore because there's nothing that they can do because I didn't tell them the role that we can play in the future. Right. And how are they supposed to know that? They don't know that half of us don't know. So if we don't know, then yeah, 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 exactly. And we're complaining that we never get consulted. Like, and it's like, maybe we did it to each other. Yes. Yes. Our documentation needs to reflect the role that we play now and in the future. That is something I did not expect to learn from our talk. Thank you, Kelsey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We got five minutes. You want to talk about treatment? Yeah. I mean, this patient obviously didn't need treatment right away. I'm still waiting for his um, surgery. So Um, In terms of treatment, this is just kind of a generic treatment that I might perform on any patient. Um, So for a treatment note, you want your S, like we've talked about. For our O, you're going to want to list the direct swallow exercises that you complete. This needs to be skilled swallow exercise-based intervention that was guided by an instrumental swallow study. So you want to include the type of exercise, the equipment that was used, the number of reps, the level of cues, the percentage accuracy, all of that information. You want to include the patient and caregiver education that was provided, which includes like the content of the education, the mode of the education. Was it verbal? Was it written? Was it demo? Um, The patient and the caregiver's response to that education. So that kind of gets into like informed consent. So you also want to make sure that you're presenting your patient with options, that you're educating them on the risks and benefits of all of the different treatment options, including diet modifications for like compensations. Um, and that you're presenting presenting those things, documenting them, and documenting the patient or caregiver response to that education and that they're in agreement with your plan. Um, Jen, what I hate to see in a dysphagia treatment note is like PO trials. If I see, if I did all the work to do a 
clinical and then a fees and then a video swallow for your patient. I tell you exactly what is wrong with their swallow physiology. And then your treatment is you giving them PO trials of the diet recommended that, that I recommended. I will die. I <laughs> like, are you kidding me? So PO trials generally are not skilled therapy. Let's just repeat that. Um, maybe if the patient's like changing in medical status and you just want to know if they need another study, you can give some trials, but therapy should be therapy. Um, and then your assessment of your therapy session is just a summary of their progress that day in treatment um, and a statement of their rehab potential and their continued need for field service, and then your plan, just like all the other plans that we've talked about. Um, so my example was just one that I just made up. So something that's pretty generic. So my my S, my patient is alert. They're following commands easily. They're highly motivated for therapy. Um, they're not in pain. They have reduced activity tolerance and maybe require frequent rest breaks throughout treatment. My O says that my patient completed the following exercises to target physiologic deficits identified on fees, including impaired laryngeal vestibule closure, UES relaxation, and cough strength. So I introduced my patient to effortful pitch glides times 30 with verbal and demo cues with 50% accuracy. Um, Chin tuck against resistance times 30 with verbal cues with 80% accuracy. Um, Expiratory muscle strength training via a peep valve times 30 at 10 centimeters of water pressure, which is 80% of my patient's maximum expiratory pressure. I'm just giving data. These are the exercises completed, this many reps, this was the accuracy, or this was the support needed. And then um, educated patient and the spouse on swallow exercise program via verbal demo written education, encourage the spouse to facilitate patient swallow exercise program in sets of 10 TID, like three times a day. Um, The patient and the spouse were highly receptive to education, perform verbal teach back. So that's my O for a treatment note. And then my assessment is excellent progress in exercise-based swallow rehabilitation today. Patient continues to require skilled swallow therapy to improve laryngeal vestibule closure, UES relaxation, and cough strength. Swallow prognosis appears excellent given patient's motivation and family support. And then my plan is complete swallow exercises and sets of 10 TID with family support, oral hygiene every four hours, encourage physical mobility as medically feasible, swallow um, skilled swallow therapy with SLP five days a week, and then repeat fees in approximately four weeks. There we go. Very nice. Thorough. Um, when I had a student this past semester and we were working on our documentation, because, you know, an outpatient where I mostly work, it is treatment heavy, like in acute, it's assessment heavy. And so in our documentation for our treatments, it, we had to kind of work around what we were given. As I mentioned, we have a lot of click boxes. So I was like, I'm sorry, we're not going to use those. <laughs> we're going to do all the free typing we can and all the narrative. And so what I was working with her on was saying what we did, why we did it, how the patient responded, what assistance level that, that they needed from us to be successful. And then what we were going to do next, like how we took all that information and how that was going to affect their next session, what our plan was for the next session. Like, did we need to ramp something up, ramp it down, um, change something because they were like, the patient was like, you know what, Leanne, I really hate doing X, Y, Z exercise. Is there anything else? Cause I hate doing it, you know, and being like, yes, we're going to throw that out and give you something you will practice that you, you would benefit from doing. So 
that was like my little contribution to the world. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what should be in a therapy note. Like you commented on the exercise you were exercises you were doing, why you were doing them, the patient's response to them, their accuracy. That that is what we need to be including, not bedside PO trials for therapy after an instrumental has been done. Sorry, that is my biggest pet peeve in the entire world. I think that I you're sensing a little bit of a pet peeve here. I, yeah. Well, because I feel like I am trying so hard. I did three hours of work on one patient in one day to diagnose their dysphagia perfectly for you. And this is what you give me. Man. Yeah, we've got some work to do as a field of, of bringing everybody in together. I feel, I feel like we're trying to build an arc and we're trying to gather everybody into this arc. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's all float together to the top, but you got to get in the ark. Come get join in. us. Get in. <laughs> all right. That was incredible. Like I've made so many notes and I'm going to go back and like pour over them. I think what I'm really, really appreciating is I feel like I was getting elements of this, but I wasn't organized in my approach of where to put them every time. Mm-hmm. So for example, like when you talked about, Um, their cognitive communication skills and their pain tolerance, like, you know, in our little clicky boxes, we have a place to just say like what they're rating their pain at. Mm -hmm. But I feel, yes, it does need to be commented on or, or like documented, but I feel like it would be better to say not just they're experiencing a level two out of 10 pain, but like how that affects the whole overall treatment and putting that up in the subjective, you're starting off giving whoever's going to read that an idea of like how they're going to do. So I like that. I got like a hundred more questions, but I'm going to save it for our, <laughs> for next time. For part right. three. <laughs> exactly. It's like, Kelsey, you only think you're done. I'm going to like pick your brain apart. This is great. <laughs> um, okay. So if people want to learn more, how can they learn more about improving um, how they're documenting our skilled interventions? What do you have cooking up in the future? Well, I mean, as I kind of mentioned in our earlier talk, I don't know of any con ed course out there that's giving this type of information. Um, And I think this information is so important. So I'm putting this together in a live eight hour conference style, hands-on clinical writing workshop CEU course, where we're going to dive way deeper kind of into all of the elements of report writing from clinical swallow evaluation to video fluoroscopy to fees and um, maybe treatment notes. I'm still kind of content planning there. But so I'm putting together this course. I'm going to give over a hundred report examples organized by category, um, just so that it's like I what I think everything that someone needs to kind of revamp the way that they're writing. Um, so I'm putting together that course. I like I said earlier too. I'm putting this on in partnership with Teresa Richards Mobile Dysphagia Diagnostics, um, and we are looking at early August of 2020 for this course to launch. And I'm really excited, and I will definitely be sharing details with you all when I have them. Excellent. I'm looking forward to that because it's like abundantly clear. Like I need that hands-on practice. Like once I, you've, you've really given an excellent 
um, framework and foundation, but I know I need that like repetitive process of like getting the information and being like, okay, now how will you write that out? Like, how will you, where will you put that? Like following the framework, you know, it's like, I need to practice that like consistently, constantly. And then having you there to like, give that feedback Mm -hmm. to calibrate that would be super helpful. Yeah. I mean, like we can take so many continuing education courses. Like there are so many good courses out there on like the knowledge and the skills that we need. Um, And what people need is as they're continuing to grow, to learn how to integrate all of this into your notes. Because, you know, like you said, like your skills can grow exponentially. But then if you're just writing the same old notes, no one's going to know that. um, And it's not going to, it's not going to have the same impact that it could. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Kelsey, you are a treasure. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your knowledge, and and all the hard work that you've done, that you've put into improving your documentation and sharing that with us. That is really incredible. Thank you. Sure, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 